Hello and welcome to Carbondale Historical Society's third podcast. This one will again focus on the Historic Women's Series, produced by Sue Gray, Kate Sherween, and Rally Burley. This podcast will focus on none other than the famous Edna Sweet. Edna Sweet was one of Carbondale's early pioneers. She lived here from age 13 in 1885 to her death at 82 in 1954. She published her book, Carbondale Pioneers, in 1947. We hope you enjoy this first-person account played by Jackie Chenoweth. I was born Mary Edna Denmark in Missouri in 1872. In 1880, my father, C.E. Denmark, went west to seek his fortune. He spent three years in Crested Butte. Then, in 1883, amidst the biggest silver boom the United States had ever seen, he journeyed to Aspen. When the Ute Indian Reservation was opened up to white settlers and claims on land were filed, my father purchased land on the Roaring Fork River near what is now Carbondale. The law at the time stated a married man had to live on the land with his family. So in 1885, my father sent for mother, myself, and my little brother, who was only two years old. I was 13. We traveled by stage over the mountains to Leadville. From there, we were to journey on to Aspen. We left Leadville at daylight with over 30 other people on three heavily loaded stages. It was March and there was still snow in the high country. At Twin Lakes we were transferred to sleds and crossed Independence Pass, arriving at the Weller stage stop, eight miles east of Aspen at nine o'clock at night. We were all exhausted, it was freezing. After dinner our group again boarded three stagecoaches, but the mud on the road to Aspen was so deep that our stage soon broke down and the passengers were divided between two other stages. After we climbed in the coach, I was terrified to see my first drunken woman standing up and brandishing her bottle and screaming about us being crowded in her stage. There were 15 in our coach and the driver asked if any of us would please get out and stay at Weller Station overnight. They would be taken to Aspen the next morning. On account of my baby brother, my mother decided to stay. Three others stayed also, but there weren't enough beds at the station for everyone. Luckily, two men came forward and kindly offered their beds to my family. We started for Aspen the next morning at nine and did not reach our destination until later that afternoon. We stayed at the boarding house in Aspen until July when my father arrived with a wagon to take us to our new home. We journeyed north toward the confluence of the Roaring Fork and Crystal Rivers on the toll road built by Jerome Wheeler, the mining man in Aspen, and came to the ranch proven up by Bob Zimmerman, where he and William Dinkle had opened a store in a small log cabin. Traveling on, we came to the flat land of the valley where there was only one log house where the stages stopped for meals. The rest was dry, barren desert of sagebrush and shimmering rays of heat. 
Not a tree, not a bird could even be seen in all that desolate waste. We lived in a small cabin, and there my brother and I grew up. Many more settlers arrived, and a town was formed where the Roaring Fork met the crystal, named Coopertown, for its founder, Isaac Cooper, later called Satank. The first school I attended was in the little log building near the Satank Bridge. Those were quiet, peaceful years. The soil produced wonderful gardens, entirely free of weeds, which came only with civilization. The streams were full of trout, and the mountains abounded in games of all kind. We depended on venison for meat, which my father hunted during the winter when the deer came down into the valley. The meat was dried, or jerked as it was called, and hung up in the meat shed for summer use. Everybody rode horseback, and we took camping trips into the mountains where we found an abundance of wild raspberries, black currants for jelly, and sarvis berries. Everybody calls them service berries now. There lived in Marble an old man called Uncle Billy Woods. He had a violin and could grind out only one tune, which he called Wild Injun. When he came to town for supplies, word was passed around and we would all meet at someone's cabin, where we danced the waltz, polka, and square dances to the strains of Wild Injun through the night. We danced all night because it was a special amusement and it didn't happen often. After Isaac Cooper died, the town of Cooperden faded back somewhat. While a mile to the east, a new town was springing up, which was later to become Carbondale. In the fall of 1887, my father took me to boarding school in Aspen. When I returned home at Christmas time, only three months later, I was amazed to see the town had doubled in size. Shortly after that, in 1888, Carbondale was incorporated, named by Ellery Johnson, the town surveyor, for his hometown, Carbondale, Pennsylvania. Two railroads had reached Carbondale and were continuing to lay tracks up to Aspen, the Denver and Rio Grande and the Midland. Another railroad was building from Carbondale up the Crystal to handle the coal. Those were wild, crazy days. The coal mining camps of Marion and Spring Gulch were running at full blast, and the miners came down to Carbondale to spend their money. Pretty soon there were 15 saloons, and some poor unfortunate soul was rolled every night for his money. After I graduated, I became a school teacher. I taught at the brick school built on Mary Jane Francis Ranch, south of town. In 1893, while women all over the country clamored for the right to vote, Colorado passed a referendum giving women that right. I never gave much thought to elections as that was the business of men. But after the referendum passed, I registered and voted 27 years before the 19th Amendment giving all American women the right to vote. I met Frank Sweet in 1894. He and his partners, Lafayette Gerdner and William Dinkle, 
formed the Dinkel Mercantile Company. Frank was the general manager of the Mercantile, located in the big new brick building William Dinkel built at the corner of 4th and Main. Frank was 13 years older than I, but we felt affection for each other and we were married in 1895. I gave up teaching then because married women were not generally allowed to teach or to hold any job that took them away from their family. But since Frank and I had five children, I didn't really miss teaching all that much. <laughs> One of my children, my dear baby Irene, lived less than a year and is buried in the family plot in Hillcrest Cemetery on White Hill. Frank purchased a ranch on the East Mesa and that is where we made our home. We grew hay and potatoes. By the early 1900s, potatoes had become the dominant crop in the valley. The climate and soil were perfect for producing abundant crops of potatoes. Every fall, families would bring their wagons filled with sacks of potatoes from their farms into town to be sold at the brokerage. They were loaded on trains and sold to restaurants and hotels in the eastern states. Carbondale potatoes were even served in the dining cars of the major railroads. In 1909, Potato Day was started as a way for all of the families to celebrate together. The men made barbecue beef and the ladies baked all of the potatoes for the free picnic lunch held at the corner of 4th and Main in front of the Dinkle Mercantile Building. There were games and contests. Our russet potatoes won first prize in the Potato Day judging contests. But my favorite contest was the fattest baby contest. Oh, I love fat babies. <laughs> That night, there was a big dance. Many a courtship began at the Potato Day dances. I am proud to say that I was a founding member of the Carbondale Study Club, formed in 1898 by several prominent Carbondale women. We read the latest fiction and periodicals and chose topics to discuss at our monthly meetings, such as home economics, scientific discoveries, and conservation of our natural resources. The study club always labored for the improvement of the community. We helped maintain a community house for the poor, assisted in school clinics, and planted trees around Hillcrest Cemetery. When Frank died suddenly in 1932, it was such a shock. My study club friends in the Carbondale community were so kind and generous in helping me through that difficult time. After that, I began an effort to collect the stories of the pioneer families. Many of the original settlers were passing on, and I felt an urgent desire to record their histories. In 1947, the study club helped me get a copyright and publish my book, Carbondale Pioneers, 1879 to 1890. Oh, how Carbondale changed in all the years I lived there. When I view our little village lying so peacefully at the foot of Mount Soparus with its beautiful homes, trees, and flowers, then go back in memory to my first glance of that treeless desert, I feel this is indeed one of the most scenic spots of the world, worth all the toil, strife, and tears that went into the building of it. How sweet the 
Edna Sweet died in Carbondale in 1954 at the age of 82. Again, thank you to Jackie Chenwith for that excellent rendition of Edna Sweet. Next up is Mary Ferguson. She was born in Spring Gulch in 1906. And by the way, we have a wonderful video on Spring Gulch that everyone should check out to get a better understanding of the town that was once there. She was an elementary school teacher in Carbondale afterwards for 27 years. She lived from the horse and buggy era to the space age. She died in Carbondale in 1999 at the age of 92. We have just received her interviews, of which there are over a hundred, where she interviewed for Katie and Kay, all the old timers that founded Carbondale. Those interviews will play after we're finished with the Historical Women's Series. <laughs> 